is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi. Hi, hi. Paul. <laughs> hi, everybody. <Hello. laughs> okay. I feel, yesterday, we forgot to mention everyone that was here until like uh, the Chris's surprisingly jumped in. So <laughs> let's start. Uh, this, we are here. Yeah, yeah let's start. We've uh, got Chris and Chris. Go ahead, uh, Chris. Chew Man, you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> Chris Chu, the uh, attending MedPeds guy on the show. Hey, this is Chris Thrash. Aren't you another attending MedPeds guy on the show? I am. Yeah. <laughs> Chris and Chris are Med Pete's guys. <laughs> okay. Our spinoff show soon to come. Soon to come. Yep. And uh, you, you guys live together? Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my wife. <laughs> what you can see is they're sharing a microphone. It's like a Springsteen performance. This is pretty magical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ne- maybe next year we'll have a budget for more microphones. But uh, for right now, I think we're doing okay. Waiting for that innovation grant to come through. Yes. Yeah. Should I tell so, you guys I left one in my room? We're back. We're back to tell you... More more high yield uh, pearls that we found from today at the conference, actually, and a little bit from yesterday because we went to some sessions after we recorded yesterday's, and that's what we're going to start off with here. We went to the consult guys, and actually, we've been planning to do a show, uh, almost I guess you could call it a crossover show with the consult guys to have them come on and talk with us about perioperative medicine. And that's going to be pushed off by a month or two now because they, in their talk yesterday, they mentioned this study called the METS study, which was uh, in the, it, the protocol was in the British Medical Journal in 2016. It's a study where they're going to follow, where they have followed 1,700 plus patients um, one year post-op. All the patients uh, that were in this trial got a cardiopulmonary exercise stress test plus a Duke um Duke Activity Index and a serum NT Pro BNP, and then they followed these patients out. The primary outcome they're looking at is all-cause mortality or non-fatal MI within 30 days of their uh, major non-cardiac surgery. And while we don't know what the results are yet, uh, the consult guys tell us that this is going to be practice changing. So hopefully we will uh, be able to do a nice episode with them on on that and uh, and really figure out this whole perioperative medicine thing, which is always given me some some anxiety, which is why I want to do an episode on it. You know Pretty what sure I this got... is going to validate serial stress testing. I think <laughs> oh, time is finally due. <laughs> wonderful. Every every adult over 50 should have a, a yearly stress 100%. test. Yeah. Yeah. What I came away from the consult guys was actually that Mona Lisa has a mystery diagnosis and you guys have to figure it out. <laughs> and they could follow they could follow your Twitter. Uh, yeah, they could follow your Twitter, Stuart, if they want to if they want to figure that out. Uh, Chew Man, you had something to say about uh, kind of related. Yeah, yeah. So I, the, one of the talks that I went to was a panel of um, of doctors talking about perioperative anticoagulation management, uh, including Stephen Mall, um, Dr. Vern, and Dr. V- Villas Gonzalez. Um, basically, um, one of the first points I, I took away from it was that basically when you have an endoscopic procedure, even with the high risk ones, um, stopping. Aspirin is is rarely indicated. Um, I think they one of the big the big things I took away from it was basically a journal one of the journal articles which had the 2016 ASGE guidelines for endoscopy and antithrombotic agents that came out in 2016 and the gastro 
in the Journal of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. So I think if you guys look that up, um, it'll answer most of your questions. Some of the things that came out of that talk include um, restarting NOACs after polypectomy. Usually they recommend one or two days. Um, definitely talk to your endoscopist about that, um, as well as uh, with urgent um, endoscopies and emergent endoscopies. Most people are fine with uh, scoping with INRs less than 2.5. Um, there's a lot of deb- little bit debate on how to get people down there, but um, especially with uh, with a NOAC or DOAC, um, four-factor PCC might be um, the most common use of that for that, I should say. Um, well, going on to reversals, um, also with uh, medications like uh, dabigatran, basically hemodialysis is no, no longer indicated because of the reversal agent, which is, uh, you guys can help me pronounce that. Nope. <laughs> no, yeah, a- sorry, a- I can't help you. A- yeah. Adram, erisusumab. Ad- Anyhow, um, overall, the study showed that it's rapid and safe. Um, with the 10 inhibitors, they have andexanet alpha, which um, I think they say might be approved in the next month or so. Until then, um, PCCs, the force factor PCCs, um, can be used as well. And that's for the 10A? Mm-hmm, for the 10A inhibitors. Um, and then for antiplatelets, you know, they just recommend you know treating with platelet agents. I think the last speaker then just was talking about valvular disease, and I think the most interesting p- part was he gets asked all the time about um, stopping anticoagulation for uh, cataract surgery, and he said, "Would you stop anticoagulation if you went to supercuts for a haircut?" And the answer is no. So, <laughs> so he's he's saying that the technical difficulty of a cataract surgery is equal to a haircut. Don't tell Dr. Glockenflecken. <laughs> Excellent. Eye barbers. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Basically, half our audience just heard, stop your anticoagulant when you get a haircut. <laughs> well, the, some, of, some of what we went to today was, was actually about the hidden curriculum. Dr. Williams, did you have any comments, comments on that? I mean, I have no powerful insights. I mean, I think it's stuff that we kind of intuitively know already. So in, in case you're not familiar with the concept, the hidden curriculum is in contradistinction to the overt curriculum. So there's the stuff that we teach and then the stuff that we teach kind of implicitly by our behaviors and how we actually demonstrate um, our, our values. And so basically the takeaway point is to be aware of the hidden curriculum and just behave well in front of your learners. So try not to be um, callous or cynical or model behaviors that actually sort of demean a patient and just be conscious of your own, your own behaviors and how learners may actually pick that up. And I think that was the big takeaway point that I took from that. And also be very careful how those modeled behaviors do affect burnout down the road for those physicians who choose not to go into primary care or, or actually for those who do go, choose to go into primary care and end up modeling the same behaviors that will ultimately lead to increased burnout down the road. So depersonification, looking at patients as hits and not necessarily as an opportunity to make an impact on their their care, things like that. That was Dr. Lehman and Dr. Desai who presented this one. And this is, this paper was in the Annals of of Internal Medicine in February, 2018. And, uh, this is, this is where I, I get out my own guilt on the show. When, so I, I was, I was mentioning to Paul that when this paper came out, it, it really, I, I immediately like sort of, I just read, you know, even just reading like the abstract, I was like, oh, I definitely need to get get on my best behavior when I'm around my learners because of you know modeling uh, and and the, whether you like it or not your learners are looking to you as like how they should behave so I spend two hours a day uh, I'm allotted for teaching rounds sometimes you know longer than that but I need to be on my best behavior during that time and, and really be cognizant of what I'm doing in front of learners I think the way I combat that is 
with all my residents and my students, I'm, I'm always constantly feeling like I'm, I'm I want to sell them that I love what I do because I want other people to do what I do. Yeah. So if I'm on the wards and I'm excited about teaching and I show how cool it is to see all these different patients or even in the clinic where it can sort of be a, you know, a slog sometimes, but especially with the med students to come see me, you know, they don't know what they want to do. And I'm like, look, primary care is awesome. I get to see all these patients. People love you because they get to know you and they ha- you get this continuity with, with your patients. And, you know, I try to show that to my, to my uh, students that's trying to, you know, I'm trying to sell them that I want them to do what I do. I think one other, one other comment I would make uh, that you're just making me think of, I think when you, you walk around an office and you hear colleagues talking to each other in ways about patients that just seem really... Um, Callous. Yeah, callous. That's, thank you. That's exactly the word I was looking for. I I think we all need to think about that because it just normalizes the behavior and then everyone, no one even, it doesn't even seem like shocking anymore that, that they're talking in a callous way. It's, you know, we, we've talked about this before where one of the main determinants of whether or not a learner goes into primary care is whether the role models, is the role models that they have around them. And if you have, if you have primary care doctors that seem dismissive or seem, like they don't respect patients, they're not gonna they're not gonna go into primary care. So I think Chris's point is exactly right. If you role model your excitement to talk about patients and, and see patients and really care for people, I think those that's a way to keep people within medicine and, and also that as Stuart points out, that will ameliorate against burnout as well. There was actually uh, one of the ones that you and I went to, it was from the annals looking at some of the articles and one of the quotes in there from the uh, quote from from the article that he was just basically reading verbatim was that you can truly fake it until you make it. And what the reason why I even bring that up is because if you approach a patient as if you're happy to see the patient, the patient will reflect that same attitude that you're presenting to the patient. And it it's easier to enjoy what you do if you approach it as if you already enjoy what you do. Unfortunately, it sounds really dumb. It, feels, it sounds like I'm telling, telling you to just, you know, pretend like you're, you're enjoying what you do. But ultimately, if you do that, you will enjoy what you do. It's like putting the pencil between your teeth, you smile, and your <laughs> yes. body thinks you're happy. That's exactly uh, what it was from. Yeah, even if you're like, even if you're unhappy, right. Okay, we, I want to move on to the GIM update stuff. Thrash, you had some Dr. Thrash, sorry. Yeah, that, you, you had some things to tell us there. That's okay. Uh, Dr. Bundrick from the Mayo Clinic had some excellent points, but I think the two ones I wanted, I took away were, um, for venous stasis ulcers, which is a really difficult problem to treat. Uh, he mentioned this Cochrane review of 11 RCTs that showed, um, uh, when combined the, that pentoxifiline, um, when taking TID, uh, those patients had a 61 re- percent uh, either significant response or resolution of the ulcer um, compared to 37 percent with placebo um, so something else we can use uh, for phenus stasis ulcers in addition to compression so that's exciting i uh, didn't did not wasn't aware of that use of and we, were, we were just roughing the stats on that so that's like a 30 percent absolute risk reduction and a number needed to treat less than five yeah roughly. He, he quoted a number needed to treat a four yeah um and to be clear, that's that's what the compression stock is in addition, correct? Uh, he did he not specify. He said compared to placebo, so I'm, it's hard to do placebo compression stocking. So I'm assuming that it's placebo pills and everyone. But actually, he did mention that four of these trials had no compression, and they did have some response with bentoxifiline alone, but not as significant as when they did with compression. Stockings. So there was some heterogeneity in that data, then, right? Yeah, yeah. but okay. it's it's yeah. something that can be done and. Um, but toxifiline has some GI side effects, but it, and TID dosing is obviously not easy, but something okay. besides compression that we can be, do, can be done. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to get a show notes for this one, but I, I feel like that article would be worth putting into the show right. notes since we're, yeah. uh, 
not not exactly sure of the stats. Remember, we're we're off the cuff here, more or less. <laughs> the the other uh, case that he and I thought this was fascinating. He he described this sixty six year old woman um, who comes in with classic presentation, uh, no symptoms of Graves' disease, but uh, chemically looks like Graves' disease with a suppressed TSH, elevated free T4. Um, and she happens to mention she's taking biotin for her nails, which apparently biotin can give you all of the chemical findings of Graves' disease, a suppressed TSH, an elevated free T4, and even false positive uh, receptor antibodies. Excellent. Um, so he, he recommends if your patients uh, insist on taking biotin uh, and you're screening them for thyroid disease, they need to hold them that supplement for three days prior to. Hmm. So if you want to start synthro, oh, sorry. So if you want to start levothyroxine, just take some biotin and go see your doctor. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> Stuart. Tell us about sports doping. Absolutely. Sports doping with Stuart. So a couple of things that I took away from this one. (laughs) Right on brand. It's good. So uh, the first thing is there's a few things that really have no evidence that they work, even though they're commonly used in sports doping. It's erythropoietin, human growth hormone, and bronchodilators in general. Interestingly enough, um, most athletes from from what was being presented are diagnosed with reactive airways disease because they want to take bronchodilators, and they're also diagnosed with erectile dysfunction because there's some evidence that might suggest that the phosphodiesterase inhibitors could improve performance. However, None of that's really panned out in the data. What does seem to work and is really truly frowned upon is anabolic steroids. But interestingly enough, <laughs> interesting, interestingly enough, what works and is legal, and this was from a uh, large meta-analysis, 34 trials uh, published in 2015, is our caffeine-containing energy drinks, but in a dose-dependent response to taurine, not to the caffeine. And then Another interesting article that was presented, which I found just absolutely hilarious, was that following a high-intensity judo workout, chocolate milk improved recovery. So, so the take-home point is to... At this conference, but you're framing it as it was almost a how-to do sports doping. Is that, <laughs> I hope we don't have any Russian listeners now. They're all going to drink mocha lattes with taurine. Oh, boy. I went to uh, Itchy Rashes and Gnarly Nails, which was, um, I'm sorry, I don't have the speaker's name right in front of me here, but she was um, from one of the Harvard hospitals. And there was there was some a lot of really usable stuff here. Some of things that overlapped a little bit with our dermatitis episode. One of them was numular eczema. Sometimes can be hard to tell the difference uh, between that and purpura. So if you take a, an alcohol wipe, uh, that's right, guys. I'm talking about alcohol pads yet again. So if you if you wipe yes, off if, the skin with an alcohol pad, you can see if it, in, in patients with dark skin, it can be hard to tell um, numular eczema from like purpura. So if you wipe off the skin, you can look for the purple color underneath. If it if it just looks hyperpigmented, then it's more likely to be something like a numular eczema than purpura. Also, uh, just reminding you that steroid is there's steroid rankings. Number one is the most potent. Number seven is the least potent. Uh, hydrocortisone would be an example of like a seven, the kind they sell over the counter, and a number one would be something like a clobetazole. Ointments, creams, and lotions in that order tend to be uh, have higher oil content. So if you want to moisturize somebody, you're going to start with an ointment or a cream because it has more oil uh, versus a lotion, which is, has a higher water content. And uh, you should also think that for certain steroids that the... Um, ointments might be more potent. They tend to be more potent than creams, which tend to be more potent than lotions. And then uh, I learned that a fingertip unit, uh, if you look at the distal the distal tip of your finger, that is one fingertip unit. 
and that is about half a gram of uh, cream or ointment. That's enough to cover both palms in general. So a 70, the average 70 kilogram man or woman would be covered by about 20 grams of, of cream or ointment. So think about that when you're prescribing. If, you, if someone has a giant rash, then don't prescribe them like 15 grams. Give them the big tub. The tub, yeah. So Triamcinolone famously comes in a one-pound jar, which uh, I love to order for patients. She pointed out that bleach baths, uh, there's a recipe for these. Uh, bleach baths, actually, it's, it, it just amounts to being the same as swimming in a chlorinated pool. So if you have a pool, just swim in your pool. <laughs> um, and then she said, I like this phraseology, so I just wanted to put it on the show. If, if you see a rash that is not round or oval, then it's probably an outside job, meaning it's, uh, it's, it's probably like a contact dermatitis or something like that. So squares and lines, um, the body doesn't necessarily tend to do that. It, it, it likes uh, ovals and circles. And then finally, topical azoles. If you, if you have a rash and you're like, huh, I don't know if this is eczema or something inflammatory or if this is tinea, well, if you're between putting steroids on it or putting antifungals on it, start with the antifungals because putting the steroid on it first makes it so that it's going to be hard to tell what you're actually dealing with in the long run if it doesn't work. That's good to know because that's how I treat every rash. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so you got to flip your practice that the same thing for me. And the last thing we wanted to talk about today was the press briefing that we went to. Uh, the a ACP has an initiative on physician well-being and professional uh, satisfaction. And uh, I'll kind of open it to comments. Maybe, Paul Williams, you're our expert on the topic. Why don't you tell us uh, what did you take away from that and anything you wanted to point out? I'm, I'm not sure I'm the expert. I'm, I think I'm the one who complains about um, it the most. <laughs> but so it's, it's a, ACP has actually put out a task force that is sort of looking at um, well-being and professional satisfaction, and they're using a multi-tiered approach. So they're looking at both sort of systemic changes and, and advocacy on that level and putting patients over paperwork and then also um, targeting the individual level. So this this idea of building resiliency among individual members so that they can sort of tolerate the, the day-to-day indignities that tend to lead towards more uh, physician burnout. And so um, there's a couple of prongs that they're, they're utilizing. So they're looking at policy development. They're providing resources and tools, um, both at a practice level and then also at an individual level. And then they're collaborating um, with other organizations to sort of reinforce and, and work on this concept of uh, protecting against burnout. Um, and the last one is just advocating for internists. Yes, and advocating for internists, which I don't... Weirdly, we got they, too much into it, even though we're at ACP. These are all just kind of like buzzwords, right? Yes. But unfortunately, these buzzwords only address individual resiliency and not the system-wide issues. And that's that's kind of, you know, something that... that, that I, I think part of what they were pointing to is if, if you want to sell this to your organization that you need to do things, it, it costs about $500,000 when a physician, a burned out physician leaves a practice or it leaves a job and you have to recruit and train someone new. Right. And, and that's, and, that's how you can sell it to your, to your administrator. And you've got to, you've got to be careful to use the leadership language and not necessarily the physician well-being language. So to to frame it under the the idea of say, hey, let's do this initiative that's focused on physician recruitment and well-being and retention instead of let's do this initiative that's focused on keeping us happy. <laughs> that's a great point. There's there's all sorts of like just novel things that you can do um to 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 get this. So that one of the speakers whose name maybe it's worth 
uh, so the, mentioning. The, pa- the panel who, who was there would include ACP President Jack Ende, ACP Board of Re- Regents Chair Dr. Susan Thompson-Hingle, Dr. Cynthia Smith, and uh, VP Government Affairs and Medical Practice Sherry Erickson. And one, yeah, one, so the one thing that I wanted to point out, uh, Dr. Smith, she had said that there's, there's like really low cost things you can do. There's, there was a study, she said, just having physicians, they were like, okay, you, they had one group that could go home an hour or two early and the other group just ate lunch with colleagues. And like the, the group that ate lunch with colleagues was like, you know, happier than the group that got to go home early. So I think just like we're, we're stuck in front of the electronic health record so much that just forcing us right. to communicate with our colleagues, just a simple thing like that made a difference. Well, that's why we do what we do right now. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was, I mean, I was heartened by the fact that they recognized that, that the individual measures are, are not the big, are not going to be the big things, but right. the things that we can do quickly. And yeah, so exactly. it's important to build resilience, but on the other hand, we still need to advocate for systemic change and decrease administrative burden and, and create a system where it's actually gratifying to take care of patients and you spend more time with patients rather than all the stuff that kind of comes around patient care, which is the thing that burns out providers. So that's the, that's the long goal. But in the short term, we still need to provide these tools to help individuals be resilient as we sort of fix the system itself, which is going to take some time. Just to put a positive spin on this whole thing, I, I feel the fact that it's such a part of the vernacular now that we're talking about like wellness and hidden curriculums and uh, the ACP is putting like out such a big push to, to announce all these things. It, like we know about the problem. We are actually working on them so that at least we have a fighting chance. Whereas I think in the in the very recent past, none of these things were common to talk about. And so now hopefully things will be getting better. And I think we'll be able to appeal to the purely mercenary side of healthcare in that people who are not burnt out are going to take better care of patients or are then going to live longer and utilize the yeah. health system less. So I think it's now that we're recognizing we can study it and actually prove that happier doctors make better doctors. Yeah. And and less uh, $500,000, uh, you know, $500,000 cost of right. physicians leaving when they're unhappy. And with that, we will end. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. It's okay. There will be no show. <laughs> there will be no show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and uh, but you can sign up to receive our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. You can subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at thecurbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto here with. I've been. <laughs> we got Chris and Chris. I've been Chris Thrash. Excellent tonight. This is Chris Choo Choo. And this is Dr. Stuart Brigham. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Well, goodbye, Paul. Okay. Uh, good night, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>